Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, she had, what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, (laughs) son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her to seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem in the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month of Tebe, the the month of Tebe, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen 
instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is the word of the Lord. It was like Monty Python meets scripture. <laughs> With the start of a new year, we begin a sermon series on the book of Esther. And in one sense, as you were joining in the fun, it's hard to resist a story like Esther. During the time of the Persian Empire, a stunningly beautiful girl of no particular importance is suddenly elevated to royalty she marries the king of the land and becomes his queen. Though she carries a dangerous secret, this young woman heroically thwarts the evil plot of one of the king's most trusted advisors, and in so doing, saves her people from annihilation. If you've never read this story as we go through its pages, you can almost picture it as a movie that we're watching on the big screen. And yet, despite its blockbuster potential, Esther is a book that hasn't always been embraced within the church. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series before on Esther? A couple, okay, but not many. It's a story that's often perplexed Christians more than it has inspired them. Why? Well, to begin with, if you were to read this story today, and we'll get through it, but as we get through it in the next couple of weeks, you'll find that even though the word king is repeated over 100 times, you will not find any mention of the king of kings. The Lord of Lords, Yahweh, God, in the entire book. Not even once. There's no explicit reference to worship or even faith in this story. While we may question and applaud or cheer the actions taken by Esther and her uncle Mordecai, there are no explanations given as to their thoughts or motivations. We're never told, as we are in other books of the Bible, whether their behavior is seen positively or negatively in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, there is nothing explicitly religious or spiritual about this story. As we read through Esther, we can't help but ask ourselves, where is God? Where is God? And in many ways, if we could just stay there for a second, that's a really good question in and of itself. Where's God? I mean, haven't we all wondered that at some time in our lives? Even just once, at some point in our lives, haven't we all, with all the stuff that's going on in our lives or in our world around us, asked, where's God? Sometimes it's hard to find a spiritual balance in this confusing world in which we live. A lot of us struggle with the perceived invisibility of God that the Lord doesn't reveal his presence, that the, door, the Lord doesn't exercise his power the way that we want. So often, we're captivated by the supernatural means by which God works in the Bible. It's part of what draws us to Scripture. It's, it's the stories from Sunday school, if we, if we learned about this when we were kids, that still stay in our memory. The parting of the Red Sea or the cessation of the earth's rotation around the sun. These are the stories that captivate us, and yet these are also the same stories, these supernatural interventions by God that can haunt our faith journeys. Why can't? Why doesn't the Lord show up 
in my life, in our world, in such dramatic ways? Is God less involved now with us than he was back then? We can wonder. And if, if you go there and, and you add on to it another layer, you add on to it, you live your life and you encounter that moment in life when goals that you've had, dreams that you've held on to, goals and dreams become dashed, crushed by the circumstances of our lives. This, this kind of pondering can suddenly become for us a crisis of faith. Especially if we understand the goals that we have or the dreams that we've been, been holding on to is God-given. God could have made things happen for us. He could have brought our dreams to fruition, but he didn't. And so we ask, is God really in control? Is God really in control? Is God really working all the time? In such moments, we can face two temptations in that kind of a crisis of faith and that kind of wondering about where is God. Two temptations we can face. First, temptation is we can just be tempted to blend in to fall in line, to assimilate with what we can see, with what we can taste, with what we can touch, with what we can predict. We, we begin to, not being able to see God, convince ourselves that only what is visible, only what is tangible is truly real. It's what matters. And so we are tempted to play it safe, to embrace predictability, follow the crowd. We abide by the rules in order to be rewarded, and we import that into our understanding of our faith. If you do what you're supposed to do, God shows up and God works. If you don't do what you're, if you do what you're not supposed to do, God will not be present. We internalize that sort of predictability. We put that because it just makes it easier in this confusing world in which we live. Or the second temptation is we despair. We give up. Stop wasting our time on hope. We convince ourselves, others may even tell us to get tough. To stop looking at our relationship with God and how God works in this world with rose-colored glasses. In fact, some of us can even say that, it, that it's, a, it's a, an orientation of our faith to expect the worst. That's what the Bible tells us. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So toughen up. Harden your heart. Take what you can get. And if we embrace despair, if we're, we succumb to that temptation, for many of us what happens is being cynical is seen by us as being wise. Being cynical is true wisdom. Anything else is just naive. All of this kind of dovetails on this day. It's interesting that today's January 6th because today is actually the official day known in the church as Epiphany. We're celebrating Epiphany on the day of Epiphany. And traditionally in the church, Epiphany has been an occasion for remembering the three miracles that reveal the divinity of Christ, God in the flesh, now, this morning, we're not going to study one of those three miracles, which would be typically the practice in the church. We're starting, as I've said, a six-week series on an underappreciated book where God's not even mentioned, Esther. And we're doing so because I believe in this book we can find some reassurance and perspective in the midst of the questions and temptations that I've just talked about. This story anticipates the greatest revelation we've been given in Jesus Christ, that God is not only with us, but for us. And the overarching way I want us to read the book of Esther and to understand how it points to that greatest of revelations is that Esther presents to us the providence of the Lord. And that's why I believe it's in, this, in our Bible. That's why I believe it's included as part of the canon, because of its emphasis on the providence of God. 
providence. It's kind of a churchy word. Let me give you a definition for it from seminary. When we talk about providence, the providence of God, it's referring to the continuous work of God through which he makes all the events of this universe fulfill the original design for which he created it. What? Huh? The continuous work of God through which he makes all the events of this universe fulfill the original design for which he created it. To bring this down, break this down, providence is this understanding that we worship a God who is always present. When we speak of God's providence, it's that God is always present. God is always active. Providence refers to this understanding that God is always accomplishing his purposes through the free will choices of men and women like you and me. The story of Esther reveals the providence of God quite profoundly. It reveals to us that Yahweh is never in hiding. His work, his influences, his larger person purposes may be hidden from our view, but God is never in hiding. Just because we can't see or understand the Lord at work doesn't mean he isn't on the job. Now, I want to say something before we dive into Esther. One of the ways, one of the beautiful things about Esther is Esther actually forces us to have to do something that we should do whenever we study Scripture. It forces us to read Scripture in light of the rest of Scripture. Because the Bible's divided up into books and into chapters and into verses, we have this tendency to pick the parts that we like. And Esther is a book that forces us, the only way we can understand it, the only way we can see God in it, is because it's surrounded by the rest of the scriptural story. We have to keep that into account. And so it's the rest of scripture that speaks often about the providence of God that we actually see on display in Esther. So there's no separation from it. In order to understand Esther, we're keeping the rest of what scripture tells us in view. And that's how we're going to go through this book. So, in order to better appreciate this idea of providence, let's set up the story. We had a reading from chapter 2. We're looking at chapters 1 and 2. Let me get you to where we ended up today. First little background. The story of Esther takes place during the time of the Jewish exile. It's during the reign of the Persian Empire. The story takes place in a place you heard called Susa, which is modern-day Iran. Over a hundred years earlier before this story, the Jewish people faced the shame of watching their holy temple pillaged and their people captured. Only the poorest of the poor remained in the land. The rest were forcibly settled in Babylon. The Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC, and they would be the second great empire to dominate the Middle Eastern world. Their empire, just to give you a little perspective, stretched from modern-day Libya and Africa all the way to Pakistan and Asia. And they reigned for 200 years before they were replaced by the Greeks, who would then be replaced by the Romans. Now, the story of Esther fits biblically, in terms of the biblical history we have, between the chapters of 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra. Because when the Persians defeated the Babylonians... The Jews were given permission by Cyrus the Great, the Persian king Cyrus the Great, to go back to their homeland. This story takes place 50 years later when Cyrus's grandson, Xerxes, is on the throne. 50 years later when Esther starts, many Jews have not returned to their homeland, which is why we find Esther and Mordecai in Susa, modern-day Iran. Now, King Xerxes in this story uh, has a different name in Persian, so if you ever see it elsewhere, you're not confused. You know it's the same person. His Persian name is Ahasuerus, but Xerxes is the name that we're given in Esther. And we don't have a lot of description from the Bible, but the historian Herodotus 
actually has written a lot of history about the Persian Empire, and he actually describes Xerxes. Xerxes is described as Herodotus as tall, dark, and handsome. Very ambitious, very intelligent, and extremely jealous. With that background, Esther starts where the kingdom, the Persian Empire, is at peace. And Xerxes is holding, if you read chapter 1, three banquets, which together last 180 days. Now that is one long party. Six months. He's bringing together all of the leaders of the providences throughout the empire. And probably he doesn't have them all together at once, which is why it's a six-month-long party, because otherwise the empire would be exposed. He's bringing them in. They're sending them back out. So he's having this six-month-long party. And the text doesn't tell us anything other than he's having a party. But Herodotus tells us that the reason why Xerxes had this party is he's planning an invasion of Greece. He's planning to launch an invasion of Greece. So this six-month series of feasts, okay, to give us a little perspective, is intended for show. What Xerxes is doing is he's trying to show off his muscle, his, his affluence. He's trying to inspire and impress his subjects and his leaders with his kingdom's wealth and power so that they're ready to go to battle. They're pumped up to go and invade Greece. We're told if in chapter 1 that this was one heck of a party for six months. Tons of food, lots of drinking. In fact, so much drinking, people were getting drunk, including Xerxes. And on the seventh day of one of the feasts, Xerxes is kind of feeling good. He's been partying. And he orders one of his eunuchs to bring out his queen, Vashti. Remember, this is all for show. And so Xerxes wants to show off his trophy wife. Wants to bring in and show the height of his power and his influence. And so he sends one of his duties to get Vashti so she can be put on display in front of his guests. One problem. She says, nope. Not coming. We're not told why, but Vashti refuses to come. And let's just say the king gets a little ticked. He's furious. And we need to understand the irony here, right from the outset as Esther's being told. This is a guy who's got a six-month-long party going on, a series of feasts. He's trying to show off the power, the weight, the gravitas of the empire. And in a single moment, it all comes crashing down when his wife says, no. No. Understand the triple threat that's going on here with Vashti saying no. Triple threat. First, she as a woman is openly challenging the authority of a man, and that just won't do. She, as a wife, is blatantly disobeying her husband. Uh-uh. And to add insult to injury, she, as a subject of the realm, is defying her king. Vashti's no is a big deal. In fact, Xerxes' wise men, by the way, these are magi, which we often talk about on Epiphany. If you were here on Christmas Eve, these are the kingmakers. He turns to his seven wise men, his magi, and the magi go, oh, you got trouble, my friend. Is big. This is not just an insult against you. This is an insult against the whole empire. Your people go home. Their wives will start to talk. It'll be anarchy. We can't have this. We can't have women telling men no. We can't have wives disobeying their husbands. We can't have subjects disobeying their king. And so they tell Xerxes, you need to take some action. And they recommend that Vashti be banished from the kingdom forever. And by royal decree, drafts a law, Xerxes puts her in exile. Now, that's in the third year of Xerxes' reign. He divorces Vashti. He's not going to marry Esther. You heard it until the seventh year. So what happens in between? Again, Scripture doesn't tell us, but history does. Herodotus records that in the time in between, 
Xerxes does what he has always been planning to do. He invades Greece. And <laughs> he fails. Not once, but twice. So keep that in mind when chapter 2 starts, when it reads, and Xerxes remembered Vashti and what he had done. Is this a king who now is coming back with regret? Man, I kind of had a little bit too much to drink and pushed it too far. Boy, that was the beginning of a really bad losing streak. <laughs> or is this a king who's coming back and is having a str struggling with his ego? I mean, keep it in mind. <laughs> in a single chapter, Xerxes has moved from the height of his power and ego flexing his muscle to uncertain and less stable ground. He's a king without a queen. And he's a king without a conquest. What kind of king is that? He needs to exercise some power. He needs to show off. He needs to show some authority. So again, his wise men, his magi propose, you know what you need? You need a whole new harem. You need to get rid of the old harem. You need to get the most beautiful virgins in your empire. You need to get them all, gather them all, and pick the best one to be your queen. I'm going to trample on some ways that you've heard Esther before, perhaps, this morning. Right here, you should understand that contrary to how this story is often told, this is no beauty contest. This is no beauty pageant. What's happening here is Xerxes is making a power play. He is showing his authority. This is not a beauty contest. Women are taken by conscription, not voluntary. They're separated from their families. Can we imagine the tears of separation, fathers and mothers from their daughters? Can we imagine the women who had planned out their lives, gone, done, you're coming. And they experience a year's worth of beauty treatments, as you heard read. Moisturizing their skin, perfume being applied, their hair being done. For what? A one-night stand. One year for a one-night stand. They may never be called forth again by the king. He may never remember their name, but they still belong to him. For all intents and purposes, their life is over. Scholars estimate that somewhere, there were somewhere between 400 and 1,400 girls that took their turn along with Esther. 400 to 1,400 girls. Harems, you know, we use that word and you hear it in Scripture and we think Arabian Nights, you know, we get all Aladdin and all that. Harems, no matter how you looked at it, were dens of slavery. And yet through all of this, pausing here for a second, it's the beginning of we get to see the providence of God at work. Xerxes is exactly where God wants him to be. I'm not saying, and that's a different thing than saying that Xerxes is doing exactly what God wants him to do. But Xerxes is exactly where God wants him to be. He's looking to flex his muscle. He's looking to flash his power. But the Lord has other plans in store through all of this. And right from the outset, one of the things about providence and Esther that we need to, to focus on is Esther as a whole is showing us the providence of God by satirizing, making fun of empire. It's making fun of the empire, the ways of the world. The story of Esther throughout is mocking its claims to authority and power. Any empire, its claims to authority and power are being mocked by the providence of God. The reality of God's providence in this story is a reminder to us not to take the power and glory of the world too seriously. And we live in a world and we live among empires that want us to take their power and their glory seriously. Esther is a story that says don't buy into that trap. Names and locations may change, but empire is always the same throughout history. It's always the empire of materialism. 
It's always the empire that's about stuff, acquisitions, reputation, titles. And in many respects, as we go through Esther, we're going to hearken back to the teaching we've had on covenant and kingdom. Remember that triangle for covenant that we talked about. We invert that triangle when our identity comes from our stuff, our reputation, our titles, our power. That's the way of the world. Esther's going to mock that. It's going to mock what we've been taught all our lives, which we've internalized, but we don't even acknowledge. We've all internalized the way of empire. We have grown up studying the laws of success, how to get ahead. And how to get ahead, how to win friends and influence people, is all about living according to the standards of the world. Think about how many times, unconsciously, think about how many times in our lives we have tried to fill our lives with stuff in order to make us happy. How many times have we thought this relationship, this marriage will finally make us happy? How many times have we thought this new powerful position at work, this bigger paycheck will make us happy? How many of us play the lottery for exactly this understanding? Man, if I just get that big break, man, if it just comes through, I'll finally be on easy street. I'll never be unhappy again. This is the way of the world. The end result is always the same, and that's what Esther wants us to see. The end result is always the same because as we see through Xerxes, the emperor has no clothes. We're supposed to laugh at Xerxes. We cheer for Mordecai. We're supposed to laugh at King Xerxes with all his power and his pleasure, ruling the largest empire of his, war, of his time. It's not enough. He continues to strive aimlessly. Can we say it for what it is? It's a midlife crisis that doesn't just strike kings, but strikes men and women. We get to middle age. My God, I'm middle-aged. We start to lose a little hair. My God, I'm losing hair. We start to realize our life's not quite going the way we thought it was going to go. We're gaining a few pounds. We're not in our prime anymore. And trust me, all you need to do is have teenagers to find out you're not in your prime anymore. <laughs> Love you, son. Love you, Demma. And in the midst of that midlife crisis, we just get tempted to dump our regular boring life. You know what we need? We need to buy a Corvette. You know what we need? <laughs> you know what we need? We need to find a pretty young thing. Pretty young thing. And that will cure our problems. Pretty young thing, 20 years older, younger than we are, and we'll finally be happy. And if you doubt that we haven't internalized this, this is in the way of empire. Here, let me give you a little, little brief experiment. Um, if you either like to watch or get dragged to watch romantic comedies, the next five romantic comedies you watch, I want you to notice something. Notice that in all those romantic comedies, the guy, the actor who's playing the guy, is usually in his 60s and 70s, and the woman who's playing the girl is usually in her 30s or 40s. And yet this has stood up as this is what it's all about. It's the old guy who finally finds the young, younger woman and the younger woman finds fulfillment because she's with the older guy. The way of empire. If we just have this. But Xerxes is someone for us to laugh at. He appears to be a rich man, but he's really a poor man. Some translations actually put when, he, when Xerxes encounters Esther, the king loved Esther more than, than the others. But the NIV gets it right because the real translation here is that King Xerxes was more attracted to Esther than all the other girls. This is not a love story. I'm sorry if I'm bursting your bubble. This is not a love story. 
It represents the providence of God. Xerxes, in the midst of all of his stumbling and wandering, is ignorant of how God is at work, putting Esther there despite his striving. He represents the kingdoms and peoples of this world that claim and assert power and authority and yet ultimately lead empty, frustrated, and laughable lives because they're ignorant and out of sync with how God is at work. When we talked about covenant and kingdom, We talked about, there, thank you. We talked about this understanding that you have to live in covenant in order to experience the kingdom. But what's being modeled here by Xerxes and what's modeled here in Esther is how most of us live, which is we try to live in kingdom without covenant. We try to assert or claim our own power and authority, and it ends up leaving us empty and frustrated. And it comes out of this place that our identity has to come from our power and our authority. But what the providence of God is about is understanding that our identity again comes from knowing who we are, who's in control. And out of knowing who's in control, that's where we receive our power and authority from. You are seeing modeled here in Esther the inversion of putting kingdom before covenant. Now, I want to say something, and this is an important way to understand Esther too. We're able to say all of this. I'm able to say all this. We're able to see this, the providence of God, because we know the outcome of the story of Esther. It's only because we know the story, it's hindsight that enables us to see and appreciate God at work. And this is a reminder to us that in our lives we need to regularly look back. A little perspective is the best remedy against taking the ways of the world, taking ourselves too seriously. How many of us in our lives have been in the thick of something and thought the world was at stake, our lives were at stake, this is everything, and then six weeks, six months, six years later we look back and go, what was the big deal about? What was that all about? This is, again, a reminder that in order to see the providence of God, we have to look back. We have to look back. And at the same time, by looking back, the insight we gain helps us not to take ourselves seriously, but it helps us to take God more seriously. That God is at work. His unnoticed handiwork is present even though we can't see it. Now, this is where we're going to tread on dangerous ground because many of you have a very specific picture of Esther that I'm going to tear apart, and I apologize because what I want to suggest to you in chapter 2 is Esther has not learned this lesson yet. Esther is, has yet to learn the lesson of living in covenant and then in kingdom. She's still trying to put kingdom before covenant. When she first enters the story in chapter 2, she acts like someone who's bought into the authority and power of the empire. Her identity is shaped by the standards of the world in which she lives. A little insight into her background we're given. We're told that she's an orphan, left in the care of her uncle Mordecai with apparently no other family. She's Hebrew by birth. Her family roots are in Judah, but she's Persian by upbringing. So she's been raised in the ways of the empire. And notice how she acts in chapter 2. In contrast, she's no Daniel. And if you don't know who Daniel is, Daniel served under an empire and yet continue to defy that empire and assert his authority, assert the reality of God. And yet what we see from Esther, right from the get-go, is that she conceals her nationality and her family background, believing, no doubt, that her true identity will hurt her chances with the king and possibly risk her life altogether. And so Esther plays along. She lives not only in the world, but as Scripture tells us not to, she's of the world fully complying with the outrageous demands of the empire, unlike Daniel, who defied them. We're told that Esther had a lovely figure and great beauty. 
Her good looks get her noticed immediately. But make no mistake, we're also told that Esther works the system. She pleased and won the favor of Haggai. Now, we all want to see God in this. We want to say, oh, but that's because God had favor on her. It doesn't say that. Esther worked the system. She had beauty, and she knew what to do with her good looks, and she won favor with Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. And what we also see is Esther's not just well-practiced at surviving, but she knows how to thrive in the empire because she knows how to fit the agenda set for her. Don't miss the subtlety of she basically takes her cues from Haggai. Now, we want to import godly stuff in this. That eunuch's not teaching her godly stuff. The eunuch is teaching her the ways of the empire, and she doesn't add or take away from She says, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. She knows how to fit the agenda set for her, and we're told, in taking her cues from Haggai, she asks for nothing other than what he suggests. And her willingness to let the empire define her reality earns her, you heard it, preferential status. Beauty treatment, special food. She gets seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, and she's ultimately placed in the best harem, best place in the harem. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in many ways, Esther in chapter 2 is the ultimate anti-Vashti. She perfectly complements her king and his empire. Ironically, we often think Vashti is the bad guy or like one of the lesser people. She's the only person in this story who at first says no. Esther says yes. And it all seems to pay off. Remember, Xerxes has a one-night stand with 1,400, 400 women, but he remembers her name. And Esther becomes the new queen of Persia. Now, again, we all want to import God language. Oh, he remembered her because God gave him the whammy and he just couldn't stop thinking about Esther. <laughs> I'm here to suggest to you, how is it not also possible that Esther knew how to give the king a good time? And she's remembered by the king. She's remembered by the king. Her conformity, her assimilation... Don't miss this too, results in another lavish banquet. The king declares a national holiday. Gifts are poured out on all the subjects, happiness and blessing all around. And on the surface, it would seem that Esther's concealment of her identity and her compromise of her purity, both in terms of her diet and in terms of her body, would appear to have been the right choices. After all, if it all ends well and it ends in so much prosperity, how bad can it be? I'm playing with you right now because what Esther's doing is it's pushing for us is how often do we live by an end justifies the means rationale. How many of us in our own walk with God go, well, if it all works out and everyone's happy, then it must be God's will. If it all works out and everyone's happy, then it must be God's will. What Esther can't see what we often fail to see is the providence of God in action. Esther, no doubt, believed that her pedigree what pedigree? Her background, controversial. Her chances of being useful to God because of that or anyone was probably improbable. She probably looked at her life and said, the chance of me being used by God is improbable. And no doubt you can picture it that the people around her, the values of the world around her would have supported that opinion. Clearly her uncle Mordecai does because we're told it's her uncle Mordecai who says, don't you tell them who you are and where you're from. You work it, girl. Don't you tell them who you are and where you're from. And when life seems to work against Esther, when she's conscripted into the king's harem, she works the system. She turns on the charm. She buys into the goal of winning the heart of an unworthy man. Not just to survive, but to thrive. And what she doesn't perceive is that her success, where she ends up, has less to do with her actions 
than it does with God's action on her behalf. Esther's family tree would seem to make her unfit, but God's perspective is different. That's, again, the beauty of providence. God will use whom he chooses, however he chooses. Esther's questionable choices would seem to put her outside of God's will. I can quote chapter and verse where she's violating God's law here. And yet God works through her actions and the choices of others to put her in the position to be his instrument for saving his people, her people. And again, just to draw out to you the significance of providence, we are all aware of this looking back. In the midst of this going on, how many Jews do you think in the midst of the Persian Empire were paying attention to any of this? How many of you, saw, think, any of you think they saw any significance in what was happening? No one anticipated or realized what God was doing here until after it happened. That's the providence of God. That's the incredible beauty and grace of understanding providence. Whether you're a king who seems like you have it all, but you keep striving only to end up with nothing, or whether you're told that you're a nobody, no one of significance with supposedly nothing to offer, and you're working the angles, playing the game, mortgaging your soul, just trying to get ahead in this world to be somebody, Either way, you're a king or you're a nobody, Esther declares the Lord is at work in your life. The Lord is working his glory, his promises, his purposes through you. The providence of God, beloved, is our assurance that no one is counted out. No one is disqualified. No one is useless in his kingdom. Everyone's invited. Everyone gets to play because of God's covenant. Because of our relationship with God, who we are in God, we get to be a part of his kingdom. Are you here this morning and you've counted yourself out? Are you here this morning and someone else, others around you have said, you're counted out? Are you here this morning and in the midst of the pressures and temptations of this world, you've just decided to throw in the towel, to assimilate, to join the crowd? Are you here this morning living in despair, taking a cynical view of the future? You know what? It's just going to get worse. There is no hope. If you this morning and throughout this study embrace the mystery, the providence of God, you will experience true grace, true freedom. The silence in this story, the silence of the author of this story about the actions of Xerxes and particularly the decisions that Esther makes and how they reflect on her character and spiritual fidelity are in fact an encouragement to us. It's not that our choices don't matter. In life, our choices matter. In this story, the choices matter. They're real. They have an effect and a consequence. But the thing about providence that Esther wants us to understand is that in the midst of all of our choices that are real, they're never the last word. For there are no personality flaws, no physical disfigurements, no personal inadequacies that render us useless in what God is doing. This covenant and kingdom stuff, exposing it to us, our relationship and our responsibility, everyone since who's talked to me is fixated upon how do I get this right? And we have to understand it and we have to embrace it, but it's not about getting it right 100%. It's about understanding that this is how God works. This is how God always works. It's not about our perfection as much as it is allowing ourselves to be perfected by God. If you're not hearing this, despite all of our failures, and we all have failures, despite all of our bad decisions, and some of us, if we don't have a list, other people do of all the bad decisions we've made. <laughs> in the midst of our egos, 
in the midst of the empires that we build, in the midst of the kingdoms that we pay allegiance to, regardless of whether we always make the right choice, regardless of whether we always have the best motives, God is working through our imperfect decisions, our limited perspective, and our misguided intentions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Esther is a story that proclaims what we know ultimately in Christ, that we worship a God who brings salvation out of dead ends. We worship a God who brings redemption out of poverty. So many people, so many people want supernatural revelation, like I said before. We want that burning bush. We want the raising of the dead. But through Esther, I want us to see that providence is natural revelation. It's probably the greater miracle because it's the most profound miracle that God is working behind the scenes in the midst of all of our claims for absolute power, in the midst of all the reigns of terror that we experience either in our lives or in our world, that God is working. He's exercising his will in the midst of our choices without coercing or manipulating us. Now, I know for some of you, you're going to be exactly right where I'm about to say, because whenever I talk about providence, the number one place that most people go to is the minute you start to talk about it, unpack it, is everyone's like, well, how does that work? How does that work? I need to figure out how that works. How does that work that I can make real choices that matter, and yet at the same time, God can do what God's going to do? How does that work? Can you graph that out for me? How does that work? We want to get, we get stuck in trying to figure out how it works. But let me tell you pastorally, you'll never be able to figure it out. And let me say further to you pastorally, which is why Esther doesn't give us a lot of explanation, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how it works. The most important thing isn't what's most important is the assurance that it does, that God can, will, and does accomplish all that he's purposed and promised for us and for our world. Isn't that what's important? How would your life change if you actually believed that? And that's your homework. I have homework. I want you this week, and you won't be able to do it in isolation. It's going to require you to talk to somebody else. Reflect on the providence of God in your life. Look back. Look back on those moments, those events, those circumstances in your life when you could not see God. You ask maybe even where is God, but looking back, you can see his fingerprints, his hands all over it. Look back and talk about, celebrate the providence of God. And let me just make a quick clarification of what you want to be looking for. The providence of God is most evident when we look back, and when we look back, what we're looking back on are the things that were unexpected, unanticipated. We didn't see it. We couldn't have seen it coming. We couldn't have seen how it all came together. That's different than looking back and making the past fit into the history we want to tell. You understand what I'm saying? It's the difference between, well, I really wanted the story to turn out like this, so I'm going to remember it so it turns out like this. It's not what I'm talking about. That's not providence. That's self-denial. <laughs> providence is where we look back and we go, that was God. That was God. We could not see it, but this and this and this, that was God. Because look at how it came together. Look at how God revealed himself. And I'm asking you to do this for homework so that we can better enter into the story, but also I'm asking you to do this because this is your greatest resource if you're right now struggling to see God work in your life? Where are you struggling to see God at work in your life right now? Where right now are you being tempted to lose hope? Where right now are you being tempted to just fall in line with everybody else, to assimilate? Where are you being tempted right now to go, oh, the heck with this, I'm just taking over? Look back 
celebrate the providence of God, if we do that together in community, that's our ability to give testimony when we worship that God is still in charge. That is our ability to sing and to pray and to celebrate that our destiny in Christ is secure. That is our ability, our strength to wait and see what God is doing, to live in confidence that the outcome is not in doubt. Beloved, we know the end of our story. We just don't know the particulars of how we get there. But the thing is, we know we get there. God's providence, in other words, if we embrace it, become our opportunities. Our opportunities to learn, to grow, to participate. That's what Esther will learn. So beloved, let's not blend in. Let's not lose hope. Let's not have a short view, but let's take the long view of the journey that's ahead for us. May Esther's journey inspire us to see that each one of us, ourselves and each person around us, is uniquely, fearfully, wonderfully made to live and serve as a child in God's kingdom for such a time as this. Those are not just words for Esther. They're words for every believer in this God, every person in Christ. We exist, we live and breathe every day of our lives for such a time as this. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.